Chapter Six of Living Alone by Stella Benson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. An air raid seen from above. The moonlight lay like cream upon the pavement when the witch and Harold her broomstick left the Higgins's doorstep. London was a still Switzerland in silver and star grey, unblotted by people. There was a hint of pale green about the moonlight, and the lamps with their dim light downcast were like daffodils in fairy fields. The witch mounted. Harold, who was every inch a thoroughbred and very highly strung, trembled beneath her, but not with fear. They reached Piccadilly Circus with supernatural speed and flashed across it. The sound of people singing desultorily while taking shelter in the tube floated up to them. Here the witch said, Yoop! to Harold, and he reared and shot upwards, narrowly missing the statue of one in a bus-catching attitude, which marks the middle of the circus. As soon as the witch had outdistanced the noise of expectant London, she heard quite distinctly the approach of London's guests. They came with a chorus of many notes, all deep and dangerous. There were a few clouds wandering about among the stars, and to one of these the witch and her faithful Harold repaired. A cloud gives quite reasonable support to magic people, and most witches and wizards have discovered the delight of paddling knee-deep about those quicksilver continents. They wander along shining and changing valleys under a most ardent sky. They climb the purple thunderclouds, or launch the first snowflake of a blizzard. They spring from pink stepping-stone to pink stepping-stone of clouds each no bigger than a baby's hand, across great sunsets. Often, when in London I am battling with a barrage of rain, or falling over unseen strangers into gutters during fogs, I think happily of the sunlit roof of cloud above my head, and of the witches and wizards lying on their backs with their coats off, among cloud meadows, in a glory of perfect summer and sun. The witch, with one soothing hand on the bristling mane of her Harold, lay on her front on the cloud she had chosen, and looked down through a little hole in it. It was practically the only cloud present that would have afforded a reasonable cover, the others were mere wisps of skyweed floating in the moonlight. There was a greater chorus of aeroplanes below her now, the whole sky was ringing with it. The witch could hear a deep bass-voiced machine, a baritone, a quavering tenor, and, thin and sharp as a pin, a little treble sound, that made Harold rear and struggle to be free. "'Another witch,' said the witch. "'I was wondering why the hands hadn't got their magic organised by now.' She mounted her Harold and slipped off the cloud. The guns were shouting now, and the shells wailed and burst not so very far below them, but Harold trembled no longer. More quickly than a falling star he swooped, and in a second the alien witch was in sight, an unwieldy creature, whose broomstick sounded rather broken-winded, probably owing to the long-distance flight and to the fourteen stone of Teutonic magic on its back. There was a wicked-looking apparatus attached to the collar of the German broomstick, obviously designed to squirt unpleasant enchantments downward. This contrivance was apparently giving some trouble, for the German was so busy attending to it that at first she did not see or hear the approach of Harold and his rider. She was aroused to her danger by a heavy chunk of magic, which struck and nearly unseated her. In a second, however, she was ready with a parrying enchantment, and the fight began. 
the two broomsticks reared and circled round each other, and over and under each other. From their riders' fingertips magic of the most explosive kind crackled, and incantations of such potency were exchanged that, I am told, the tiles and chimney-pots of the streets below suffered a good deal. Round and round and over and under whirled the broomsticks, till the very spaces went mad, and London seemed to rush down nightmare slopes into a stormy sky, while its lights swung from pole to pole and were entangled with the stars. Both broomsticks were by now so uproariously excited that neither witch was able to aim her magic missiles very carefully, and indeed it was not long before Harold passed entirely beyond control. After bucking violently once or twice, he gave a wild, high cry that was like the wind howling through the fierce forest past of his race, and fell upon the other broomstick, fixing his bristles into its throat. The shock of the collision was too much for both witches. Our witch, if I may call her so, was shot over Harold's head, and landed on the ample breast of her adversary, who in consequence lost her balance. They fell together into space. "'Oh, lost! lost!' cried our witch, and thoughts rushed through her mind of green safe places and old safe years, and the little hut in a pale bluebell wood where she was born. She had time to remember the blue ground, dimpled and starred with sunlight, and the way the bees pulled over the bluebells and swung on them to the tune of cuckoos in a May mist. She had time to think of the green globe ghosts of the bluebells that haunted the wood after the spring was dead. Bluebells and being young were in all her thoughts, and it was some time before she noticed how slowly she and her enemy were falling. For they were locked together. And the enemy witch's cloak, an orthodox witch-cloak except for its colour, which was German field grey instead of red, was spread out like a parachute, and was supporting them upon their peaceful and almost affectionate descent. For all I know they might have alighted gently in the strand, and the authorities might by now be regretting the capture of a most embarrassing and unaccountable prisoner. But something intervened. The cloud, like a sheep suffering from the lack of other sheep to follow, had not yet quitted the scene. The witch's battle had tended upward, and it had ended several hundred feet above the level of the cloud, which was apparently sinking. The downward course of the combatants' fall was therefore arrested, and they found themselves still interlocked, prostrate and embedded, with their eyes and mouths full of woolly wisps of cloud. Our witch was the first to recover herself. She stood up and brushed herself, remarking, "'By Jove! That parachute cloak of yours is a great dodge! I wish I'd thought of it! I always keep my full-dress togs put away, like the ass I am. A stitch or two and a few lengths of whalebone would have done the trick!' The German was an older woman and less adaptable to the strange chances of war. She was silent for a few minutes, seated in the small crater made in the cloud by her fall. She was not exactly ugly. She had the sort of face about which one could not help feeling that one could have done it better oneself, or at least that one could have taken more trouble. It seemed moulded, even kneaded, carelessly in very soft material. Beneath her open cloak her dress was of the ordinary German reform-clyde type, and her figure had the rather jelloid appearance of those who affect this style. Her regulation witch's hat was by now probably in the serpentine, and her round head was therefore disclosed, 
with two stout sand-coloured plaits pursuing each other round it. The witches faced each other for some seconds. A long way away they could hear the spitting and crackling sound of the two broomsticks fighting. Looking up they could see the combatants, like black comets in collision. Our witch, who had good sight, saw that the enemy broomstick was uppermost, and that the writhing Harold was being shaken like a mouse. Their bristles were interlocked. One twig floated down between the witches, and our witch recognised it as coming from her poor Harold's mane. As, for this purpose, she brought her eyes to her immediate surroundings, it seemed to her suddenly that the sky was growing larger, and then she realised that this was because their refuge was growing smaller. The edges of the cloud were dissolving. She saw at last her peril and her disadvantage. If Harold should be killed or disabled, she could never reach the earth again, except by means of a fatal fall of several thousand feet. The enemy witch, with her ingenious cloak contrivance strapped securely about her, stood a reasonable chance of escape. But our witch was an amateur in war. She was without support, forlornly dressed in her faithful blue serge three-year-old and her little squirrel tippet. Magic, as you know, has limitations. Fire is, of course, a plaything in magic hands. Water has its docile moments, the earth herself may be tampered with, and an incantation may call man or any of his possessions to attention. But space is too great a thing, space is the inconceivable hand, holding aloft this fragile delusion that is our world. There is no power that can mock at space, there is no enchantment that is not lost between us and the moon, and all magic people know, and tremble to know, that in a breath, between one second and another, that hand may close, and the shell of time first crack, and then be crushed, and magic be one with nothingness and death and all other delusions. That is why magic, which treats the other elements as its servants, bows before space, and has to call such a purely independent contrivance as a broomstick to its help in the matter of air travel. The witches faced each other on their little unstable sanctuary in the kingdom of space. Our witch felt secretly sick, and at the same time she tore fear from her mind, and knew that death was but an imperfectly kept secret, and that not an evil one. After all, we have condemned it unheard. Both witches could talk a magic tongue, and make themselves mutually understood. Neither knew the other's natural tongue. But when our witch noticed several large ferocious tears rolling down her opponent's cheeks, she was able, by means of magic, to say, "'Great Scott, my good person, what are you crying for?' "'I am not crying,' replied the German witch. "'I would not allow one tear of mine to fall upon and water one possible grain of feet in this accursed country of yours. Certainly I am not crying.' "'Accursed country?' echoed the astounded English witch. "'How do you mean, accursed? This is England, you know. England hasn't done anything accursed. Aren't you muddling it up with Germany?' "'England is the world enemy,' said the German, evidently pleased to meet someone to whom this information was fresh. "'Throughout the ages she has been the robber state, crushing the weaker nations, adding to her own wealth by treachery, and now forcing this war of aggression upon her peace-loving neighbours. Arwitch laughed. She was forgetting her danger. "'This is really rather funny,' she said. "'Do you know what's happened? 
You've been reading the Daily Mail and misunderstanding it. The whole of that quotation applied to Germany, not England. It's Germany that's being naughty. You made a mistake, but never mind, I won't repeat it." The German took no notice of this. The past three years had made her an adept in taking no notice. "'And now,' she added, "'after all these very months of hopping, and long-distance broomstick practice, and of parachute practice, and of conflict with narrow officialdom, I have come, and this is the result. I am separated from my broomstick, which has all the germ-bombs hanging from its collar. The germs are those of dissension and riot. I am marooned upon an English cloud, with no enemy at my mercy but a paltry and treacherous non-combatant." "'At your mercy,' breathed Arwitch, remembering. She looked up. The broomsticks were closer now, and through the breathless air, amidst the dreamlike firing of the guns below, she could hear the difficult gasping of the hard-pressed Harold, still fighting bravely but with hardly a twig on his head. The tide of space was coming in. The edge of the cloud was barely six inches from her hand. Arwitch's mind overflowed with the thought of invasions and the coming in of tides. It seemed that all her life she had been living on a narrowing shore. She remembered all her dawns as precarious footholds of peace on a threatened rock, and all her evenings as golden sands sloping down into encroaching sleep. She realised everything as a little hopeless garrison against the army of nothing. She clutched a pinch of cloud nervously, and it broke off in her hand. She recalled her senses with a devastating effort. "'Do you mean to say,' she said after a moment, "'that poor dear Germany really believes that she is right and we are wrong? I suppose, when you come to think of it, a man-eating tiger feels the same way. It fights with a high heart and a hot reproach, just as we do." "'They are crusaders,' said the German. "'Crusaders at war with evil.' "'Why, how funny! So are we,' said our witch. "'But then how very peculiar that two crusaders should apparently be fighting each other! Where then is the evil? In no man's land?' "'They are fighting,' recited the German glibly, "'because England is the veiled enemy. Throughout the ages she has been the rob—' There was a violent explosion quite close to them, and the cloud reeled and shook. About a foot of the German end of it broke off and was dissolved. "'We're within range of our guns,' said Arwitch, looking down. "'This cloud must be sinking.' "'It will never sink enough to save you,' said the German, trying to conceal the nervousness with which she rearranged her rigid-looking cloak round her. She seemed to be sinking herself to a certain extent. Perhaps the warmth of her emotions was melting in the cloud beneath her. Certainly she now sat, apparently squat as an idol, her figure submerged in cloud to the waist. The English witch looked down, singing a little to keep up her morale. London looked exactly like the maps you buy for sixpence from sad-looking gentlemen in the Strand, only it was sown with a thin crop of lights, and was chiefly designed in grey and darker grey, and the tubes did not show so indecently. With surprising clearness the rhythmic whispering of the trains and the scanty traffic could be heard, and once even the shrill characteristic voice of an ambulance. Somehow space did not seem disturbed by these sounds. Its quietness pressed upon the listeners' minds like a heavy dream, and there was no real believing in anything but space. 
our witch felt she could have smudged London off the face of space with her finger, and the thought of seven million lives involved in the fate of that sliding chart carried no conviction to her. She forced into her mind the realisation of humanity, and of little lives lived in little rooms. "'As one crusader to another,' she said, "'do you find it does much good in the war against evil to drop bombs on people in their homes? After all, every baby is good in bed, and even soldiers when on leave are anti-militarist.' "'It always does good to exterminate vermin in their lair,' said the German, trying restlessly to raise herself more to the level of her lighter companion, who was still perched on the surface of the cloud. "'It is at homes that evil is originated. It is at homes that English women conceive and bear a new generation of enemies of the right. It is at homes that English children are bred up in their marauding ways. It is on the home, the vital place of evil, that the scourge should fall.' "'Oh, but surely not,' said Arwitch eagerly. "'It is at home that people are kindly and think what they will have for supper and bathe their babies. Men come home when they are hurt or hungry, and women when they are lonely or tired. Nobody is taught anything stupid or international at home. You can bring death to a home, but never a righteous scourge. Nobody feels scourged or instructed by a bomb in their parlour. They just feel dead, and dead without a reason.' The cloud was very small now. The filmy edges of it were faintly rising and falling like the seaweed frill of a rock in the sea. The witch kept her eyes on her opponent's face, because to look anywhere else gave her a white feeling in her head. "'Crusades of the high-explosive kind,' she said, "'can work only on battlefields—indeed, even on battlefields. Ah, what are we about? What are we about? We are neither of us killing evil. We are killing youth." "'I know, I know,' wept the German witch. "'My visit fell at Vimy Ridge.' "'You are talking magic at last,' said our witch. "'Dear witch, why don't you go home and ask how it can be a good plan for one crusader against evil to blow up another? How can two people be righteously scourging each other at the same time? It is like the old problem of two serpents eating each other starting at the tail. There must be some misunderstanding somewhere, or else some real evil somewhere." "'There is,' said the German, recovering herself. "'England is evil. England is the world enemy. Throughout the ages she has been the robber state, crushing—' But she had little luck. Once more she was interrupted by an explosion, a much louder one, directly above them. Arwitch hardly heard the noise. She seemed suddenly to have found the climax of her life, and the climax was pain. There was pain, and a feeling of terrible change all over her, smothering her, and a super-pain in her shoulder. After a second or two as long as death, she realised dimly that she was all tensely strung to an attitude, like a marionette. Her hands were up trying to shield her head, her chin was pressed down to her drawn-up knees. Her blue serge shoulder was extraordinarily wet and immovable. She looked along the cloud. Her enemy was not there. There was a round hole in the cloud, and, as she leaned painfully towards it, she could see a few of the lights of London, and something falling spasmodically towards them. The cloud had been shaken to its foundations by the two explosions, and the German witch, who had been seated perhaps on a seam in the material, or at any rate on one of the less stable parts of the fabric, had fallen through. 
Her parachute cloak, in passing through the hole in the cloud, had been turned inside out above her head, and rendered useless. Over and about her falling figure, her broomstick darted helplessly, uttering curious sad cries like a seagull's. Even as the English witch watched her enemy's disaster, the larger part of the cloud, weakened by all the shock and movement, broke away with a hissing sound. The witch's feet hung now over space. She dared not move. She had difficulty in steadying herself with her unwounded arm, for her hand could find only a quicksand of dissolving cloud to lean on. She had no thoughts left but thoughts of danger and of pain. But Harold the broomstick came back. The witch heard a rustling sound close to her, and it startled her more than all the noise of the guns, which had come, as it seemed, from the forgotten other side of eternity. The rough head of Harold appeared over the cloud's edge, and insinuated itself pathetically under her arm. Very carefully, and very painfully, the witch reached a kneeling position, damaging her refuge with every movement in spite of her care. She gasped with pain, and Harold tried to look very strong and hopeful to comfort her. He straightened his back, and she crawled into the saddle. The tremor of their launching split the cloud into several parts which disintegrated. There was no more foothold on it. The tide had come up and submerged it. Harold the broomstick was crippled. He stumbled as he flew. Sometimes he dropped a score of feet and span. He did stunts by mistake. They had not strength enough between them to get home. They made a forced landing in the silver loneliness of Kensington Gardens. It was a fortunate place, for there is much magic there. Wherever there are children who pretend, there grows a little magic in the air, and therefore the wind of Kensington Gardens thrills with enchantment, and the round pond, full of much pretense of great armadas, crossed and recrossed with the abiding wakes of ships full of treasure and romance, is a blessed lake to magic people. The witch bathed Harold, her broomstick, in the round pond. He evidently felt its healing quality at once, for after the first minute of immersion he swam about exultantly, and shook drops full of moonlight out of his mane. The bugles sounded all clear in many keys all round the ear's horizon. Their sound matched the waning moonlight. The witch bathed her shoulder, and then she found her way to a little quiet place she knew of, where no park-keeper ever looks, a place where secret and ungardened daffodils grow in springtime, a place where all the mice and birds play unafraid, because no cat can find the way thither. You can see the serpentine from that place, and the bronze shadows under its bridge, but no houses, and no railways, and no signs of London. Here the witch made a little fire, and leaned three sticks together over it. She lighted the fire with her finger-tip, and hung over it the little patent folding cauldron, which she always carried on a chatelaine swinging from her belt. And she made a charm of daisy-heads and spring-smelling grasses, and the roots of unappreciated weeds, and the mosses that cover the tiny fairy cliffs of the serpentine. Over the mixture she shook out the contents of one of her little paper packets of magic. All this she boiled over her fire for many hours, sitting beside it in the silver darkness, with her knees drawn up and her hands clasped in front of them. The trees sprang up into the moonlight like dark fountains from the pools of their own shadows. Little shreds of cloud flowed wonderfully across the sky. 
there was no sound except the sound of the water, like an uncertain player upon a little instrument. The charm was still unfinished when the dawn passed over London, and the sun came up, the seed of another day sown in a rich red soil. The trees of the gardens remembered their daylight shadows again, and forgot their mystery. The water-birds, after examining their shoulder-blades with minute care for some moments, launched themselves upon a lake of diamonds. There seemed a veil of mist and bird-song over the world. The sudden song of the birds was like finding the hearing of one's heart restored after long deafness. The witch anointed her shoulder with the charm, after having first made a drop of potion out of the bubbles in it. This potion she drank, and was healed of her wound and her weariness, and of all desires except a desire to sleep with her face among the daffodils. She was the most beautifully alone person in the world that morning. Nobody could have found her. A thin string of very blue smoke went up from her faint fire, and was tangled among the boughs of a flowering tree, but the coarse eye of a park-keeper could never have seen it. She had escaped from the net of the cruel hours. For her the stained world was washed clean. For her all horror held its breath. For her there was absolute spring, and an innocent sun, and the shadow of daffodils upon closed eyes. End of chapter 6